Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Roy may be a lot of things, but shy isn't one of them. He never backs down from a good debate. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I'm on Twitter at the Roy Green Show and emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. The issue of opioids and chronic pain. I've just been hearing for over a year now constant stories about the tragic circumstance and realities of opioids and how many lives they've claimed and what a crisis it is. And I'm not disputing that it's a crisis. But what I thought about was people who are actually on these opioid medications and who are facing tremendous pain on a daily basis, chronic pain, and whose lives are being barely managed by the opioids they receive. What happens to them when government comes along and says, as they will, this is the maximum that you can have per day, and doctors feel a significant amount of pressure to either not prescribe or prescribe with great reluctance? That's already here, the prescribed with great reluctance part. What happens to these patients? Well, before I uh, play back a little bit of what Dr. Fiona Campbell said to us last Sunday, I want to read you a brief email that I received today. And I will not mention even the first name of this individual because I haven't cleared it with him. But he wrote, Roy, I'm a loyal listener. I've lived with chronic low back pain and the paralyzing fear of powerful pain jolts whenever I move the wrong way, which is often every day, since age 13. I'm now 62. Opting out has always been a regular thought. This guy you're about to talk about today probably did this for me and others living with this invisible hell. On Tuesday, I'll be dealing with my doctor about my newly delisted hydromorph Contin meds at over two grand per month, my pension is $1,200. So the Ontario government, in its ultimate wisdom, delisted opioid pain medications. They're no longer being funded in any way by the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, and people who require them, like the person I, whose email I just read, they now have to pay full shot at the pharmacy. And this gentleman, on Tuesday, I'll be dealing with my doctor about my newly delisted hydromorph Contin meds at over two grand per month. My pension is 1200 Draw your own conclusions. So Dr. Fiona Campbell spoke with us last weekend, the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society, anesthesiologist at SickKids, worries about suicides by chronic pain patients were cut off from the only medications which reduce their pain 
and allow them to function without being a harm to themselves. Have a listen. What I'm hearing from Professor Yerling and what I'm hearing from you is that, uh, and particularly hearing from you, is that each situation, each patient, is a very individual concern. There is, there's no one size fits all. That being said, what do you say to the patient who's listening right now, who hears you and, and, and is attentively listening to every word you're saying, but tuning out whenever the suggestion may become um, even marginally mentally visible, if I can use that metaphor, tunes out the moment med- opioids are not part of the picture. I don't hear opioids. Yeah. I can't hear you anymore. Okay. So, um, and I know that this is a very real problem. So to cut to the um, chase, uh, we know that uh, we have this sort of catch-22, right, where the opioid debate is engendering really strong emotion for both sides. So um, uh, access to opioids versus limiting access to opioids. And I do, we do know already uh, that there are disturbing trends emerging uh, in terms of limiting access. So for those patients who are listening that you just mentioned, um, we know that some physicians are refusing to prescribe opioids at all for fear of reprisal from professional bodies. Um, So we also uh, are hearing of suicides by pain patients for whom opioids have been um, uh, cut off. Uh, And we know that patients are suffering from acute opioid withdrawal presenting to emergency departments. And we know that some patients who require opioids for pain or for whom they have been perceived to be helpful for their pain are seeking illicit opioids to treat their pain. So um, we know that there are vulnerable people living with chronic pain for whom opioids uh, do reduce their pain and importantly improve function and quality of life. And uh, I feel most passionately that they must not be marginalized. Um, and uh, what, what I do know is that there are efforts underway uh, to um, uh, improve uh, treatments for chronic pain and uh, develop some strategies to imp- uh, reduce the likelihood of people getting chronic pain and, and then strategies to address chronic pain. Um, there are new opioid guidelines coming, and I know that Professor Yurik spoke a lot about uh, the doses and the dose limits and so on. Um, there are many working. There are many people working to advocate uh, that uh, patients who need them, who are functioning despite their pain, um, on doses of opioids, uh, that uh, there's going to be a compassionate approach. And we know that Minister Philpot has spoken uh, to the fact that we need a compassionate approach to uh, treating pain. So the Ministry of uh, the Ontario Ministry of Health, for example, uh, is developing a standard for um, uh, how to prescribe opioids for pain uh, that we hope to certainly have in some compassionate recommendations uh, for patients for whom that they are enabling them to uh, have significant improvements in, in their quality of life. Dr. Fiona Campbell, the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. There'll be more from Dr. Campbell in the next half hour. And in the next half hour, I'm going to read you that uh, post by Dennis Prager, the talk show host in the United States. I don't want to try to squeeze it in before the half-hour break here because I don't want to try to read it too quickly. You need to really hear 
what Mr. Prager wrote, and the headline is Why My Stepson's Father Killed Himself. After last Sunday's program, I received quite a few emails from people who are struggling with chronic pain, people who are dealing with it on a daily basis, people who've been dealing with chronic pain for many years, and people who find it increasingly difficult, people who've tried virtually every possible solution that they can think of and others have recommended, including their doctors. And I got in touch with a few of them, and I'll try to get in touch with everybody over the next week or so, because I have an idea about a program. But one of the people I contacted and who wrote me a particularly memorable email was Tim. And we're just going to use first names. Tim, thank you for, uh, thanks for coming on the show, and thanks for sharing your story with me. So we're going to talk to you before the break, and then we'll talk to you after the break. When did yeah, this all right. when, when did this all begin for you, and how did it begin? Well, uh, it would be about 1989, I think it was. I had my first. I slipped on some ice, started all right there. And what, what, what developed after that? How did you, what, what, what was the step? So how, how did you develop into the person who had this massive chronic pain? Well... With me, it ended up that I had degenerative disc disease. Okay. So found that out after my first injury, right, when I first hurt myself. And uh, there was no way I could go to work. So obviously I said to my doctor, it's surgeon time, right? So I uh, went and seen an orthopedic surgeon, had uh, what they call a discectomy, which is removing part of a disc because um, it was slid out and it was impeding on my nerves. How much, right? how much pain were you having at this time? At that time, there would be probably a 10 so, every day. Because normally what the pain doctors do, they tell you, give me an, an estimate of the pain that you have on a scale of 1 to 10. So you would have been right at the extreme. Yeah, that, and that's all. Everybody's different, right? Okay. So, well, I want you to do this for me, Tim. Yeah. Just hold on. We're going to come back to you. I'm going to talk some sure. more. But I want, to have, I want you to have this thought as we break, everybody who's listening. So Tim, as the slip on the ice could happen to anybody, as the pain begin gets the surgery, and his pain is at a 10, and 10 is unbearable. 10 is what Dennis Prager wrote about. More from Tim, Dennis Prager, and another guest when we come back. Intelligent Talk Radio. Intelligent Talk Radio. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I want you to think of the worst pain that you've ever experienced, the worst pain that's ever been part of your life, and then multiply that time and time and time again. And that is what people who are dealing with chronic pain, severe chronic pain, in many cases are in fact dealing with. A doctor told me that. A doctor told me that. Now, Tim is with us. He's from Ontario, and he is a chronic pain sufferer. And uh, so it was 1989, Tim, and you went and had the back surgery because your pain was at a 10. How effective was the back surgery? I was doing cartwheels out of the hospital. It felt great. Uh, back to work, it was awesome. Didn't last long, though. That was the major problem with that, right? I was back. W- within two years, I had three back surgeries and ended up with metal rods in my back now. Um, took the discs right out because they were having to cut disc away and spine away, and, and it just wasn't working, so they ended up putting metal rods in, but all my pain is still there. None of it went away. How did that affect your life? Oh, terrible. 
um, like you said, social life gone, right? I hear the emotion in your voice. Yeah. This is what people need to know. <laughs> Try not to cry here. It's, it's tough. Yeah. And you, you, your family standing by you means everything. It is. My wife. <laughs> if it wasn't for her, I don't know. Tim, you told me you have a good doctor. Yeah. You have a doctor who who takes really great care of you and understands what you're going through and, and looks after you. You also right. said to he, me... He, like you, has a bad back, Roy. I'm sorry? Yeah. I'm sorry, Tim? what it's like. Well, I, yeah, I have, I have a, my back pain is, is marginal compared to yours. I get, a, I get some uh, nerve blocks, they call them. They put a needle in your back, and it's supposed to numb the nerve for a matter of days and... So my pain can, compared to yours is insignificant. But your, your concern is, and we talked about this off the air, your concern is for patients who go through what you experienced and what you still experience or would experience without your doctor's assistance. And your concern is what happens to those patients? Correct. That, well, I don't know what that was. When they don't, uh, if they don't have a doctor. Call, an incoming call. Yeah, that's right, Roy. I have a good doctor. I'm not worried about me. But what if, if people end up, their doctor gets afraid of these new laws coming in and cuts them off, they will have no, no choice but to go to the street. And, and like I said, when, when I, off the air, we were talking, I do my medication, and my body turns it into heroin is what it is. So people go to the street, and they can't afford $80 a pill. For me, I'd be buying 10 of them a day. Um, so what they do is will turn to heroin because it is cheaper. Right? And then next thing you know, we've got these people living on the street, heroin junkies. And I'm afraid that that's what's going to happen to a lot of them. Because I, I, a friend of mine was a truck driver. He hurt his back at work, and his doctor told him to he, go put up with it. And he ended up having a surgery and, and shouldn't have been at work, but he had no money. He had no choice. He had to go back to work, and it was all because of his doctor. And... If, if anybody's doctor out there cuts their patient off of their meds because they're afraid of the government or their own personal opinion on it, whatever it is, it is an impossible in Canada, for, in Ontario anyway, for those people to go find another family doctor to take care of them because they're not out there. There's no, nobody's accepting applications. So what is going to happen, and I, and I know it is because the government's involved in it, and, and I always compare it to... Uh, automotive designers who design a car they should not be able to do it without a mechanic sitting beside them and our government will be the same way they will do what they want they will find the doctors they want that is going to give them the result they want you know i i want to think that they won't do that i want to think that they will, <laughs> what they will do i want to think that what they'll do is they'll say uh, they'll come up with a maximum dosage on a daily for, for, for you know which which it doesn't make sense but i that's, I think, the best case scenario that we can hope from for, uh, from governments, not just Ontario governments, but governments across North America and maybe beyond. There'll yeah. be a maximum amount of uh, milligrams of, uh, of opioids that you can have, which for many patients won't be enough because now they're getting more just to get through life. Um, I, I'm and, dropping my meds. I told you that in my letter. I'm trying to, and I'm doing it myself, and then tell, I told my doctor I was going to do it. I do it, and then I let him know how I did it and how many extra pills I have. You know what scares me, Tim? You know what scares me about government? We have the Ontario Ministry of Health, (laughs) 
the Ontario Ministry of Health, as of the 1st of January of 2017, delisted all opioid meds. And so you have patients who require the opioids in order to provide some level of acceptable pain relief on a daily basis who now have to pay full freight for their opioid meds, and they don't have the money, as in the email that I received from the man I'm not going to mention, whose name I'm not going to mention. On Tuesday, I'll be dealing with my doctor about my newly delisted hydromorph Contin meds at over two grand per month. My pension is 1200 Well, I'll tell you, that's exactly what I do. That's the meds that I do, and my doctor has mentioned none of it to me. He, he's, like I said, I have a good doctor, and he, he will fight for me. He'll tell them to go blow it out their ear, is what he would do. And, and, but most people don't have a doctor like that, Roy. I read in your email, reducing my medication makes my pain worse. So it's now just how much more pain I'm willing to go through. Correct. When people go through pain like this, it consumes your life. Yeah, yeah exactly. It controls, especially a back. You know what? If you have a sore knee, you can sit down and rest your knee. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with the back. It controls your arms, your legs, your neck, everything. I, I get neck pain now because I carry myself. I walk differently. If I'm carrying a bag of milk, I carry it different than most people. And now my neck is starting to give me problems, right? So, and, and I, I don't know. I would, I would recommend to anybody out there that's on these medications to... Tell your doctor that you would like to reduce them now before this government thing comes in and, and start to wean yourself off slowly. I did it one pill, one week at a time. That's how I did it. And I never felt anything more other than pain. Uh, I wrote no withdrawals, no nothing. So you, you can drop it, but it's like you said, Roy, how much pain are you willing to take? Tim, I thank you for getting in touch with me, and I'm going to stay in touch with you. All right. We'll talk again. Thanks, Roy. Thank you, Tim. Thanks so much for joining us. You heard the emotion when Tim was just thinking about the pain. So here's the uh, the posting that Dennis Prager, and you can uh, find it at DennisPrager.com, P-R-A-G-E-R. One of our listeners sent this through to me. This is what he posted on uh, January 31st of this year. Last week, my two stepson's father, a man who loved life, killed himself. I'd like to tell you why. Two years ago, a 62-year-old father of three named Bruce Graham was standing on a ladder inspecting his roof for a leak when it slipped down from under him. He landed on top of the ladder on his back, breaking several ribs, puncturing a lung and tearing his intestine, which wasn't detected until after he went into septic shock. Following surgery, he lapsed into a two-week coma. In retrospect, it's unfortunate that he awoke from that coma because for all of its intents and purposes, his life ended with that fall. Not because his mind was affected, it was completely intact until the moment he took his life, but because while modern medicine was adapt enough to keep him alive, it was unwilling to help him deal with the excruciating pain that he experienced over the next two years, and life in constant excruciating pain with no hope of alleviating it is not worth living. As a result of the surgery, Bruce developed abdominal scar tissue structures known as adhesions. Adhesions can be horribly painful, but they are difficult to diagnose because they don't appear in imaging, and no surgery in America or in Mexico, where out of desperation he also sought treatment, could uh, remove them permanently. Many doctors dismiss adhesions regarding the patient's pain as psychosomatic. The pain prevented him from getting adequate sleep, and he could not eat without the pain spiking for hours. By the time of his death, 
He'd lost almost his ent- half his body weight. Prescription painkillers, opioids relieved much of his pain, or at least it kept, kept it to a tolerable level. But after the initial recuperation period, no doctor would prescribe one, despite the fact that this man had a well-documented injury and no record of addictions to any drug, including opioids. Doctors either wouldn't prescribe them on an ongoing basis due to the threat of losing their medical license or being held legally liable for addiction or overdose or deemed being a hypochondriac. The federal government and states like California have made it extremely difficult for, for physicians to prescribe painkillers for an extended period of time. The medical establishment and government bureaucrats have decided that it's better to allow people to suffer terrible pain than to risk them becoming addicted to opioids. They believe it's better to allow any number of innocent people to suffer hideous pain for the rest of their lives than to risk any patient getting addicted, potentially dying from an overdose. Dr. Stephen Marmer, who teaches psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, told me that he treated children with terminal cancer when he was an intern, and even they were denied painkillers lest they become addicted. Pain management seems to be the Achilles heel of modern medicine, for philosophical reasons as well as medical Remarkably, Dr. Thomas Friedan, the former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine last year, whereas the benefits of opioids for chronic pain remain uncertain, the risks of addiction and overdose are clear. To most of this, this is cruel. Isn't the chance of accidental death from overdose, while in the meantime allowing patients to have some level of comfort preferable to a life of endless, severe pain? Though I oppose suicide on religious moral grounds, and because of the emotional toll it takes on loved ones, I make an exception for people with unbearable, terrible pain. If that pain could be alleviated by pain-killing medicines, and law and or physicians deny them those medicines, it is they, not the suicide, who is morally guilty. Bruce was ultimately treated by the system as an addict, not worthy of compassion or dignity. On the last morning of his life, after what was surely a long, lonely, horrific night of sleeplessness and agony, Bruce made two calls, two final attempts to acquire the painkillers he needed to get through another day. Neither friend could help him. Desperate to end the pain, he picked up a gun, pressed it to his chest, and pulled the trigger. In a final noble act, he didn't shoot himself in the head, even though that is the more certain way of dying immediately. He told a friend some weeks earlier that if he were going to take his life, he wouldn't want loved ones to experience the trauma-inducing mess that shooting himself in the head would leave. Instead, he shot himself in the heart. An autopsy confirmed the presence of abdominal adhesions as well as significant arthritis in his spine. May Bruce Graham rest in peace. Some of us, however, will not live in peace until physicians' attitudes and the laws change.